This evening's lecture might be considered the most difficult of the lectures that I'll be giving. I believe it is the most important by far. There are two reasons why I believe it is the most important. First of all, this deals with the first attack on the Bible. Until Copernicus and Galileo, the Christians believed the Bible to be the authority on everything. Galileo started the craze of regarding scientists as more knowledgeable than God on anything to do with what could be called science. So that's the first reason this is very important. It is the first attack on the Bible, and that is what enabled Lyle and Darwin to go ahead with their attacks. Because the church had accepted the attack on the Bible as being scientifically proven. Darwin, in his Origin of Species, admitted that his evolution story was nonsense. He said, I freely admit that it is absurd to suggest that the eye, with all its intricacies, could have happened by chance. I admit it is freely absurd. He said, but when it was suggested that the earth was not the center of the universe, but the sun was, people thought that was not true, and now we know it is. So we know one thing about the Bible's not true, I'm giving you something else that's not true. I've given lectures in places, uh, for example, there was a, a series I gave in Dusseldorf, and I gave a presentation on evolution, and there was a, a, a vocal atheist there, and he said, well, it doesn't help for you to prove that evolution's wrong. The Bible says the earth is the center of the universe, so that wipes out it out anyway. And my next presentation uh, went on to the age of the earth. And again, he was a, well, you've shown, you want to show that the earth uh, is older than the Bible says, but so what? The Bible says the earth's the center of the universe and everybody knows it's nonsense. Well, it surprised him that I had a presentation on the earth being the center of the universe. But this is always the attack. I was giving a presentation at a weekend camp in, gee, I've forgotten what state it was, but it was in America. And we <laughs> went through uh, half of the presentations and 
somebody brought an atheist along and I was giving a presentation on evolution. He said, what? You, supposed to be a scientist, and you don't believe in evolution. I suppose you even believe the Earth's the center of the universe. So, <laughs> I gave a presentation on that too. But this is the fundamental thing where people think they have got Christians between a cleft stick. The Earth, the center of the universe, utter and complete rubbish. That's where the attack started, and that... Until that attack is exposed, there is no way of maintaining the truth of the Bible. There was a theologian in the last century uh, called Burkauer. And for the first half of his career, he was just about the only theologian defending biblical inerrancy and halfway through his career he wrote an article and said well the bible can't be inerrant because it holds to a geocentric universe and science has shown that is untenable and his whole theology then changed from being one firmly supporting biblical inerrancy to a compromising ministry like everybody else's. So, this is why I think this is my most important presentation. Of necessity, it is probably the most difficult because the demonstrations... Well, to really thoroughly understand them, they do need a little bit of scientific background. So I am going to skate over the science. And if you want to go into the science in more detail, you can, uh, you can look up the experiments I'm going to talk about and um, look further yourself. You will probably need to have a bit of mathematics before you can follow what you will find on it. Um, but for anyone who is serious about it, remember the experiments that I am showing you, and if you want more detail, then uh, go and look it up. But don't be um, you know, shocked by this. Don't think, oh, I won't understand this, I'm not going to listen. I think there are only a few things that you um, might have to take on trust, but most of the things I think you will be able to follow the logic and see the way things go. Well, um, how did God make the universe? What is his cosmology? What is the universe really like well there's only one way to find out and that is to see what god says about his universe it's his he created it he know how he, how he created it he's the only one who can tell us so if you want to know about this universe it's no good going to the astronomers and believing their stories 
They put it on the television and in the textbooks everywhere all day long. And sadly, Christians believe it. There's a chap called Louis Giglio, and he thinks he's really glorifying God by showing pictures produced by these secular humanist scientists and says, isn't God wonderful to have made the universe like this? Well, if he had made it like that, it would have been wonderful indeed. But that's not the way he said he made it. So why are we glorifying the universe of the secular humanists instead of God's universe? So let's look and see what his universe looks like. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, I would like to suggest that this is the overall view. He's introducing what he's going to do now. Now, you might be skeptical about that, and it's actually not important whether you agree with me or not. I'm going to give a, uh, a reason as it crops up for why I believe that. And if you think my argument is convincing, maybe you might take it that way too. Now, in this, the heaven, it is the Hebrew word <coughs> um, shamayim, and the im ending at the end, it's called the dual. It means, in some way, there are two of them. For example, mishkafayim, um, sunglasses. It's one item. But there are two parts to it. It's in the dual. Um, a pair of trousers. It's a pair, but it's only one garment. It's got two aspects, but we call it a pair of trousers, and it's the same with this word, shamayim, and the earth, haaretz. And the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now here we have got the first demolition of the Big Bang Theory. Because the only, water, the only um, substance mentioned so far is water. That's the only material we have got here at the start of creation. The Big Bang starts off with hydrogen coming out of an explosion. That hydrogen takes millions of years to form stars. In those stars, nuclear reactions take place, and among the chemicals that it, along the, among the um, elements it produces, it's oxygen. Then, after a lot of time, some of these stars explode and throw all these elements, including oxygen, out. Now the oxygen can combine with hydrogen and produce water. Billions of years after the Big Bang. But here, right at the beginning, the Spirit of God is moving on the face of the waters. So when you have compromises like Hugh Ross trying to match the Bible with the Big Bang, he falls down at the very first step. The first material is water, not hydrogen. 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the night he called, uh, the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So, we have God here creating light. It doesn't say he created a star, or the sun, or some light source. He creates light. Now, we've got a problem here because science doesn't know what light is. It can tell you an awful lot about what light does. But what light is, nobody knows. In some circumstances, it behaves as if it was a waveform. And you can explain a lot of experiments with that, um, with that idea. There are other observations which suggest that light must be a little packet of energy or a uh, a particle, a quantum. And to explain those experiments, you can't explain them with the waveform, you can with the quantum. And there aren't any of these experiments that you can explain with both. Now, they've suggested light might be a combination of a particle and a wave, a wavicle. But there aren't any there aren't any observations that fit in with that. And that means that science doesn't know what light is. So one thing we do know about light is that it moves, and it moves very quickly. If you have a flashlight and you point it up and you press the button and the light goes, you switch off, that light is gone, it is Millions of miles away, by the time you've looked up, it travels very quickly. So we've got a question here. How can this light that's created define day and night? How it, this is defining a period, the day. And you'll notice that once this light is created, we're able to measure time. The morning and the evening were the first day. And it's this light which defines day. How? Well, I can think of a couple of ways that it might. God doesn't tell us. But if he created that light in a circuit and it's moving around, it's going very quickly. But if it takes one day to get back to where it started, that could be how he uses this to define a day. Maybe if there was a reflecting, two reflecting surfaces and it takes 12 hours to go one way and reflect back and come 12 hours the other way, that could possibly another, another way that this light can define time. If you had a, an optical cable long enough, you could put it in any shaped circuit you like so that it would take one day to go all the way around. But Exactly how this defines day and night, we don't know. But it certainly appears to be this light which defines the period of a day. And now, we can have, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And you'll notice it doesn't say how long the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
Well, if there is no means of measuring time, then there's no way of telling us how long it took. We don't know. So now we have two things. We have water and we have light, which is somehow defining time. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. So we've got this mass of water, and somewhere in the middle of it, we've got him making something which he calls the firmament. And at the moment, we don't know what that is. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. So there in the midst of this water, we've got a process going on where this firmament, whatever it is, divides the water into two separate areas. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, there's an interesting point about this firmament, this of the heavens. There are several places in the Bible, like Isaiah 42, verse 5, Thus said God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out. So this is what he would have to do to separate these um, these waters. He's, he's made this firmament of the heavens, and he stretches them out to separate the waters above from the waters below. And he doesn't tell us how far he stretched them out. But there are some interesting items of physics here which can make one think. He's created water. Now, that gives us an indication that probably the temperature was something like the temperatures that we are used to. Because in, in, in normal uh, pressures, if the water gets below zero degrees, it gets pretty hard and rather hard to separate, separate out the, what's under and what's above. If it's much above 100 degrees, well, it's vapor and not really water anymore. So it's probably somewhere in the range that we expect water to be. But now any stretching out process of any medium leads to lowering the temperature. For example, if you let the air out of the tire of your car, you can feel it is cold because the, it is expanding. And you stretch it out, you're expanding it, you are lowering the temperature. Now, if God had made uh, this stuff that he's dealing with, which already followed the current laws of physics, then there would be a limit to which this process could go, because there is a minimum temperature, absolute zero, 
beyond which we cannot go. Now, it could be that God hadn't brought in the laws of physics as we know now. Maybe he could have stretched it beyond the limit where he reached absolute zero. But um, that would be the limit if the normal laws of physics were in place. So the furthest he could stretch it out would be until the temperature was absolute zero. So already there are some things we could apply science and, and get, get some kind of um, idea of what the limits might have been. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and here we have the word Haaretz, and this uh, heaven that he's created on, on day two is the Shamayim that's mentioned in the first verse. So now this Shamayim he mentions in that first verse is actually made on day two, and here Haaretz, we find this is made on day three. So this is the reason... I have for thinking that verse 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens, Shemayim, and the earth, Haaretz. That looks like a heading. And in the detail that follows how he made the heaven and the earth, he, he tells us that it was on day 2 that he made uh, the heavens, and on day 3 that he made the earth. And of course, this is all part of the beginning. The whole of chapter 1 is the beginning. It's the creation of everything. Uh, now, this is the first time we have anything other than water, the firmament, and light. And we have dry land. And it is in the waters below. And that reminds me of the verse from um, 2 Peter chapter 3 that we read this morning, where it says, And the earth, being made out of the water and standing in the water, and by water which has overflowed, was, de was destroyed. So... Um, and it also reminds me of Jesus' first miracle, where Jesus took water and he transformed it into something else, in this case, wine. And it looks to me as if this is an, uh, echoing what he did in creation, where as far as the earth is concerned, he took water and he transformed that into the earth as we know it now, with its dry land, the seas. Um, and, and God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. 
So here we see the earth pretty much as we know it now. It's got dry land, it's got sea, it's got trees, grass, fruit trees, flowers, pretty much as we know it today, on the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divided light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So now we can clearly see what this Hashamayim um, is. It's what we today would call space. It's the place where the sun, the moon and the stars are. And you'll notice that he gives these lights that he now puts in the heaven the, the job of being timepieces to mark the seasons and the days and the years. Well, that brings in an interesting question. He first of all created this light which in some way indicates a day. Now, why does he need the sun, moon, and stars now to indicate time? Well, there are two things I can think of. One is that this circuit that the light might have been in is outside the limit of the waters above. Now, that may not be so, but in that case, we probably wouldn't be able to see that light. So it would appear that he set the sun, moon, and stars in such motion that they will uh, mimic that light and take over the job of indicating time. Um, it could be, instead, that the light that he created was in part of the spectrum that we can't even see. It might have been ultraviolet or infrared. Or it could be that the light of the sun and the stars and the moon is stronger than that light, and so it might still be there, but we can't see it anymore. But for some reason or other, we now rely on the heavens for our timepieces instead of that original light. Now, we still have the sun, the moon, and the stars, the waters below, which is now turned into the earth, what about the waters above? Do we know anything more about that? Well, the only time that I can find the waters above 
mentioned in the Bible is in Psalm 148, where it calls for the whole of creation to praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise ye all his angels, praise ye him all his hosts, praise ye him sun and moon, praise him all ye stars of light, praise him ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. So when the psalm was written, that water was firmly in place above the heavens, and do we know anything more than that? Do we know anything about what's beyond the waters above? Well, the only place I can find in the Bible which gives an indication in Psalm 8, um, it, it says, um, it, it brings praise to God who has set thy glory above the heavens. So that's the only thing I know for certain about what is beyond the waters above. The glory of God is there, but until we are with him, we'll have to admit, like Paul, that, well, today we see as through a glass darkly, but one day we will know as we are known. So at the moment, we have to be content with this the universe, the physical universe that God created as being all we can know because it is bounded by these waters above and we can't see beyond them. So that's really all we have the ability to study. However powerful our scientific instruments, we can't go beyond the waters above. Now there's one other thing that we need to know about this creation. It's something which the astronomers haven't taken note of. And they haven't taken note of it because they don't follow um, Leonard Euler's advice when he warned them that when you don't take cognizance of what the Bible says, you're going to make huge mistakes. Because if we look at Jeremiah chapter 31, we see pretty well the whole of this chapter is promising the children of Israel that he will punish them severely for their backsliding and their sin. But he will never totally forsake them. And he will restore them. Um, and verse 32, and he's talking about when he has punished them and they have come to their senses and repented, and they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, said the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And then verse 37, he gives a, a promise, we can say. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, 
I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. That guarantees we will never know enough about the universe to measure the heavens. We have tried. The scientists confidently claim they know all about the distance to the heavens and they talk about it these millions of light years and they confidently talk about the, uh, the earth. If you look in the textbooks, the universities right down to the junior schools. They'll show you pictures of what the earth is like and they've got um, an iron core and they've got these various different colors for what's going on in the center of the earth. How did they find that out? Did they uh, dig a hole and go and look? No, they didn't. What they do is they look for shock waves. Every now and again there's an earthquake and there are earth tremors and they follow the pattern of the vibrations they feel on the surface of the earth. And that's all they have to go on. And they have theories about, well, what might be in the center of the earth. And they see how these patterns of vibrations that they put up all over the earth could be modeled by making some things in various places in the earth. And so they confidently tell us that's what the earth is like. But now a few years ago, some of these uh, tremors, some of these shock waves that they picked up, they couldn't really understand it. And it looked as if there was some kind of layer about 11 kilometers down that, well, they hadn't predicted there was something there and they couldn't figure out what it was. But it was only 11 kilometers below the surface of the earth in some places. So they said, oh, well, we will drill down and see what's there. Now, they were confident they could drill down 11 kilometers because their theory told them what the earth was like down to 11 kilometers. So they made some drills and they started drilling and they found they couldn't get down to 11 kilometers because the crust of the earth wasn't anything like their theories had told them. Their theories told them there couldn't be any water down there. The pressure of the rock is so great it would squeeze any water out of there and it would be dry as a bone. And yet, their drill bits being, were being washed away by all the water that was down there so they couldn't get down to the paltry depth of 11 kilometers. And there they are confidently telling us what it's like down 10,000 kilometers. Do we believe them? Well, I don't. I believe that as God said, they will never be able to search out the foundations of the earth beneath. They can speculate. They can come up with their models based on the vibrations they pick up here and there. Will they ever be able to prove it? No, they won't. And the same with their measures of the universe. 
what do we know about the distances, the things the astronomers tell us? There's only one thing I know, and that is they're wrong. I don't know whether they're telling us the distances which are too big. I suspect the distances they're telling us are much too big. But they might be too small. I just know they're wrong. Because God tells us that those distances will never be measured. We will never be able to make the right assumptions and have the right theories to be able to give a measure to the heavens. So this is a very different situation to the model we are told about. What we are told about is an enormous universe that started off in a big bang. It started off with hydrogen, not water. Um, a universe that's billions of years old. Well, it must be because the objects they can see are billions of light years away. And in, in spite of the fact that God told them they would never be able to measure, they're confident they're billions of light years away. So the universe must be billions of years old and absolutely enormous. And it's very different to this picture of ours. There is a fundamental part of the cosmology of this world. It's called the Copernican Principle. The Earth is utterly unimportant. It is in nowhere special. And as Carl Sagan put it, it's a small blue dot lost somewhere in the vastness of space. It's in such a position that even if there were a God, he'd never be able to find it. Well, here we have the universe according to the Bible, and if we look at a quick uh, picture of it, you notice I haven't put the sun and the moon in because we have no idea of the scale. Um, on this scale, that dot I've got in the middle for the Earth might be so big that it covers the sun and the moon. Then again, they may be big enough to extend some way from it. So I haven't put them in, but this picture that we have is the Earth in the middle, originally the waters below. On the outside, the waters above, and the stars somewhere in between the Earth and those waters. And we can imagine what will we see as we look out into the sky? Well, I've shown here a star. Let me just see if this uh, would work. Can, okay, can you see this? Right, let's consider this star here. All the stars will be like that. What will happen to the light from those stars? Well, there will be a light. There will be a ray which comes this way, and we'll see that star. But what about all the rest of that star? It will be sending rays in all sorts of directions. Lots and lots of rays going. Some of them, well, 
they will not hit anything until they hit the other boundary of the waters above and then they'll reflect again. Then again we might get some like this which reflect off the surface of the water and they come back towards the earth and we'll see a reflection. There may be some which go at a different angle and they bounce back and they reach the earth and there be others which miss the earth and go off and hit the waters above and bounce off in another direction and eventually they may hit the earth again. So if we look at, shall we say, a first reflection, we've got a star here and we can see that star because it sends one ray to us and one ray goes out to the waters above, it reflects back and we see an image of it. And there's another one just a little bit away from it, that bounces off, it comes back, it misses the earth, reflects off and comes. So we'll see another reflection of it that way. So looking at this ray of light, we might think it came from a star over here far away. It actually came from a star quite close by, but it's gone a long way round. And this is interesting because we would have an idea of the number of reflections that had taken place for two reasons. Point one, when light reflects off a surface like, like this, it loses some energy. And so the energy of this would be less, now it would lose the same amount of energy here and so each reflection we would be losing some energy and that can have various effects. But by the time you get to say 50 reflections, when it comes back to the earth, it will be very, very dim. And also I would expect that each time it reflects off one of these surfaces, there'll be a little bit of deterioration of the image and after 50 reflections it might even be broken up into little dots or smudges or it might be blurred. Now it would it would be um, reasonable to think that if this diameter is big enough and we look at a little bit of this mirror here it's almost flat. So it would be very much like looking in one of those lifts that used to be popular where you've got a, a, a mirror on one wall, a mirror on the other, and you can see your image disappearing into the distance. Now that is, um, well it used to be a common feature of lifts. Nowadays there aren't very many, but you can see what happens here. You have this uh, lady here and you can see the first reflection. The second reflection, well here you can see it's looking at the right hand side of the face. The second reflection is looking at her left hand side of the face. Then the right hand, left hand, right hand, left hand. And these alternate reversed images are disappearing off into the distance. They're getting fainter, smaller, dimmer as they disappear into the distance.
But how many many ladies are there? Just one. Now, perhaps the most famous um, example of this is in um, Citizen Kane. And you can see Citizen Kane disappearing off into the distance of his lonely palace where he's living by himself. And he's disappearing off into the distance into a lonely existence far away from anything. But this is what we would expect to see in every direction. Because in that direction, there's a mirror, and in that direction, there's a mirror, and in that direction, and in that direction. Wherever you look, you will be seeing this kind of thing. Now, you've not only got mirrors uh, perpendicular, but as you come around, you've got mirrors at an angle. And if you've got mirrors at an angle, you get other patterns of reflection. And you see this one perfume bottle, we've got a whole series of perfume bottles in our mirror. And this is only plain mirrors. These are, um, the mirrors around us are curved. These, this goes on in all, um, in all sorts of ways. So we can see. Here on the earth, we see light that's been bounced around from all over the place. It looks as if it's coming from here. It looks as if it's coming from a vast distance because it's bounced around a vast distance. But this star, it's not very far away. Now, just as a final mirror picture, here we've got one. I don't know exactly what the pattern of mirrors were, but we have got one girl and we have two images of her. We've got her, the back of her head and we've got the front. And as we look here, we can see these images. They're in sort of groups and these groups are gradually getting further and further away. And there are empty spaces and the further we get away, the less the empty spaces and the more packed everything becomes. And these lights, there's only one light, but look, as they disappear into the distance, they're getting smaller and fainter and they just disappear into the distance. Now, we've looked at the universe according to the wisdom of God and seen some of the things we might expect. What about the universe according to the wisdom of man? Well, they tell us it all started in a big bang. There was nothing. Then somewhere in this nothing there was a quantum wormhole and out of this wormhole came shooting millions, billions, trillions of tons of hydrogen and that hurtled off into the distance. Now, let's just have a look at some of the things, um, some of the comparisons. What would we expect on one model and what would we expect on the other model? Well, on the biblical model, first of all, it's Earth-centered. It is finite. It's bounded by the waters above. 
Space was created in the midst of a mass of water and then stretched out. And um, that was that stretching out that was done was to separate one mass of water into two parts. It wouldn't be at all surprising to find a correspondence between features in the waters below and the waters above. And, and all the heavenly bodies are in the space between the earth and the waters above. Now, on the secular model, the entire universe emerged from a quantum fluctuation uh, in the form of energy, very high temperatures, the energy condensed into matter, it coalesced into, and it mutated to form all the objects in the universe. The Earth is a small blue dot lost in the vastness of space, the Copernican principle. Space is effectively infinite, and there is no boundary. Well, there have been lots of experiments done, and we can compare the results of those experiments with the two models. Now, Arago's experiment, he, did, uh, he looked at the reflections and reflections of starlight through a moving plate of glass. So what he did was he had his telescope, an image of the star, and a plate of glass, and he moved it underneath the telescope and looked at what happens to the reflections and the refraction. Now, the refraction has to go through the glass. It goes through the glass and is reflected off the bottom face. The reflection is from the top face, so it does not go through that glass. Now, if you want to compare the reflection and the refraction, you've got to take into account what happens in the glass. And that is moving. And if the Earth is moving, then that movement will be a combination of the movement that he is applying to the glass himself and the movement that the Earth is applying to this glass. And if the Earth is moving around the sun, that uh, component will be different in each direction because if we're uh, doing it in the direct direction towards the sun, it won't be changing much. If we're doing it in the direction we're supposed to be traveling, there'll be a big difference. So looking at the reflections and the refractions, you will be able to tell how fast the Earth is moving around the sun. Now, Arago's results indicated the Earth is not moving. So that supports the biblical model. On the secular model, the earth going round, the sun going round, anything, Arago could not explain the results if the earth is moving. Now, there were a number of scientists who tried to explain those readings. Fresnel, for example, another very famous scientist, he explained it if the ether was partially dragged just enough to give the same answers as no movement, then you could explain it. And Stokes said, well, look, if the ether is being compressed in this experiment, again, he could explain it. 
But notice that both of these um, explanations, they were not expected. And they're both ad hocs because there weren't any calculations they'd done beforehand which said, well, look, this is what should happen. It's just, oh my goodness, we don't like these results. How do we explain them away? Well, the next uh, experiment, Boscovich's experiment, Boscovich actually proposed this experiment in something like 1820 because when he looked at Arago's uh, experiment, he said, well, look, we can prove whether the Earth moves or not by having a telescope full of water and a telescope full of air. Because if we're moving through space, the light coming from the, uh, the stars will enter the top of the telescope and it's got a distance to go to the bottom. And if the Earth's moving, it will move a little bit. Not very far, because light moves very quickly. But it'll move a little bit before the light gets to the bottom and we see it. And so we will have an aberration. But if we fill our telescope with water, light takes one and a half times longer. So this same movement of the Earth will give one and a half times bigger aberration. So if the Earth is moving, we should get a one and a half times bigger aberration. But nobody bothered to do the experiment. They said, oh, we know the Earth is moving around the sun. Why bother to fill a telescope with water? But nobody could really explain um, Arago's experiment, so eventually, George Biddle Airy, the British Astronomer Royal, said, well, maybe we should fill the telescope with water. And everybody had agreed. If the Earth is moving, the aberration will be one and a half times bigger. The aberration was exactly the same size, and everybody had agreed. That means the Earth is not moving. On the biblical model, well, it's exactly as predicted, a non-moving Earth. On the secular model, well, they had to start bringing in this same ad hoc as before, and they explained it by partial dragging of the ether, the fabric of space through which light is traveling. And if that ether is partially dragged along just by the right amount, then you could have the same result as no movement of the Earth. Well, the next experiment done by Mascart in uh, 1872, and it was later done by Lord Rayleigh to confirm it, polarization of light. Now, um, light can be polarized in a... To, um, to vibrate in a plane. Now, a useful application of this is if you've got a bright, hot, sunny day, you've got reflections from things like the road or from the sea or from the water or, or from leaves or windows. 
that is pretty bright on the eyes. But it is polarized in the direction of the reflection. So you can make sunglasses which have got Polaroid, which is turned in the opposite direction, so all those reflections get filtered out, and now it's much easier to see, because all that glare from all the reflections is taken out by polarization. And the theory of light shows that if the Earth is moving through the ether, then it will change the direction of polarization of the light. So, they set up experiments to look at this polarization. They found no twisting at all, which is what they were not supposed to find if the Earth is moving. Well, how does this look on the two models? On the biblical model, it says the Earth's not moving. The polarization said no movement. The secular model, well, that said the Earth's not moving, and they had to try and look for an explanation. And as far as I can make out, nobody has ever come across an ad hoc to explain why that experiment said the Earth is moving, if we know it's not. Well, the next one is perhaps the most famous experiment uh, on light ever performed. It's the Michelson and Morley experiment. And this was very famous because by now people were getting worried. There's all this evidence that the Earth is stationary and we know it's not true. We don't want it to be true. We're not going to allow it to be true. And Michelson and Morley explained the experiment they were working on. They were working on um, an interferometer and everybody looked at this cunning design and said, wow, yes, this will tell us not only the direction the Earth is moving, it will tell us exactly the speed it's moving. Because they used a very um, powerful, accurate method of es estimating uh, change in speed of light, uh, interference, light interference. And this really was... Uh, thought to be accurate enough, everyone was perfectly convinced this is accurate enough to exactly show the speed that we are going round the sun. They did the experiment and they found the speed was zero. The earth is not moving through space. So everybody rubbed their heads and they said, how can this be? And they said, oh, well, it must be that just at the moment the Earth is going round the Sun at just the same speed that the Sun is moving round the universe, so the two have cancelled out. But if we come back in six months' time, the Earth will be moving with the Sun. Now we'll have a nice big friend shift. So they did it six months later. No friend shift. No movement of the Earth. They tried it at all times of the year, all times of the day and night. This experiment was repeated on the tops of mountains in Chicago, in Germany, all over the place. The speed of, of the movement of the Earth around the sun? Zero. Well, now they really were in search of 
an explanation because now this was such a well-publicized experiment. Everybody had been waiting for these results ever since they announced the experiment was starting. And it had said the Earth didn't move. Now, an Irish physicist called Fitzgerald said, well, look, this must be because the apparatus moving through space is pressing against the ether and that pressure is squashing the apparatus. And that's what makes it give no fringe shift, as long as it, 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 it presses it just the right amount. Well, they did another experiment with birefringent crystals and still found no movement, and that couldn't be explained by changing the length. So Lorenz suggested um, it was electromagnetic properties of the ether that caused it. And he set up a, uh, a mathematical explanation using the idea of the properties of the ether and the properties of the ether, many of them had been measured. Um, and so he came up with an explanation. But two other scientists did an experiment to test that and found it doesn't work. It can't explain away the fact that the Earth is not moving according to these experiments. And then eventually Einstein came up with an idea of how to use Lorentz's mathematics without having to relate it to the ether. He said, well, we abandon the ether. The ether doesn't exist. Now, of course, that means that all these other explanations, all these other experiments no longer have an explanation of why there's no movement. But if you take away the ether, but use the equations as if it were there anyway, now you can explain why the Earth can't move. And your theory says you cannot tell if anybody in the universe is moving. You can't tell whether the Earth is moving or not. You can't tell whether the sun's moving or not. You can't tell whether the stars are moving or not. So obviously, we can say the Earth doesn't move and nobody can contradict us. Well, there were other people who still carried on doing experiments, hoping eventually to get one that said the Earth moved. Theodore de, Couver, de Couvres did an experiment somewhat like theirs, but instead of using light, he used the mutual induction of coils, and it also gave no motion of the Earth through space. Truton and Noble did uh, an experiment with talk on capacitors, and they also found no movement of the Earth. Every experiment the scientists have ever devised to find the speed at which the Earth is moving through, the, uh, through space says zero. Zero speed. It is not moving. Now, these results, um, particularly those of Michelson and Morley, caused an uproar in science. Uh, it's interesting to see what the people writing there say, but look, these results say the Earth's the center of the universe. These, the, these uh, results mean we have to accept that the Earth's not moving, and, and we can't have this. And 
the only way to avoid it was this uh, special theory of relativity. It has to deny the ether, but there are there are other problems. Um, for example, on this model, we have the observation that there are things which seem to be spinning round and round, like spiral galaxies. Now, on the biblical model, that's not surprising, because in any stretching out process, you have eddies formed. You can see this if you um, put your hands into a bowl of water or in your bath before you get into it, and stretch out your hands, you'll see eddies everywhere. And those eddies um, are an, uh, a natural part of any stretching out process in pretty well any medium. So if God created the heavens and stretched them out, you expect to find eddies everywhere. But on the Big Bang, we've got these particles flying out of the center. They're moving in a straight line away from the middle. There's no rotation there, no angular momentum, and according to the laws of physics, you can't create angular momentum from nothing. It's got to be got to be created from something. So they have to create angular momentum from some very weird mathematics. There's no physical explanation for how come space can have uh, all these um, whirlpools of of eddies. Now another problem. In 1976, Professor William Tift discovered that the redshifts by which the standard model um, determines speeds and distances, they go up in jumps. Now according to this Big Bang theory, everything's expanding and it's this expansion of the universe which causes the redshift. It's like a Doppler, it's called the Doppler effect. And the faster something is moving away from you, the more the light waves are stretched out. And the more they're stretched out, the more they move to the red end of the spectrum. Because at the red end, we've got long wavelengths. At the blue end, we've got short wavelengths. So because the further they are, and the universe is expanding, the faster they're going, the more the light is shifted to the red. So the redshift is a measure of distance. But this means that you should be able to have any distance. But he finds that these redshifts occur in jumps. And on the the scale of measurement that they've devised for the Big Bang, each shift corresponds to a step of 72 kilometers per second. Now, how can that happen unless the universe is going expanding in jumps? It, they ought to be smooth, because to have an expansion that is not smooth Mechanically, how is that possible? You're constantly having to put in energy, and the energy stops to slow it down, and putting energy stops. This is just not possible. Now, of course, 
on the biblical model, at every reflection from the waters above, you're losing energy. Now, if that amount of energy corresponds to the 72 kilometers second on the scale devised for the Big Bang hypothesis, well, we've got exactly what we'd expect. Every time there's a reflection, there is a redshift which corresponds to that 72 kilometers per second on this scale. We would expect the further away you go, the more reflections you've had, the bigger the redshift, and it will change in steps at every reflection. The secular model, well, it is a bit of a mystery. Well, the next problem to look at is the cosmic background radiation. Now, this problem cropped up when two scientists, uh, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, they pointed this big antenna at the sky and they expected to find points of, uh, of activity. They had found that with telescopes, where you're looking at optical light, visible light, you find points of light all over the place, and you interpret them as stars. If you have a radio telescope, you look at it in a different um, wavelength, wave band, and you find other objects that you can't see, radio objects. If you use uh, infrared detectors, you can see other points of light, and if you use ultraviolet, you can find other objects in the sky. So they thought with this detector, they'll be able to detect objects with microwave um, frequencies. And they thought they would find, like all the other things, a, a feature here, a feature there, and, and be able to map all these microwave features. And to their absolute amazement, they found Everywhere they pointed their antenna, they got a constant microwave signal at a temperature of mi about minus 270 degrees, which is about three and a half degrees absolute. Three and a half degrees above absolute zero. That is very cold. And they said, what on earth can this be? Well, of course, anybody who read their Bible would say, ha-ha, they have detected the waters above. They are all the way around us. They are everywhere they can point their instrument. They've picked up the signal from the waters above, and those waters above have been very cold. They must have been stretched just about as far as they could be stretched when God's grip stretched them out. Now that probably means that water is now frozen. So it could be ice, not just water, but that wouldn't make much difference to what we'd expect to see because the ice will probably reflect the water pretty much the same as the, uh, it would reflect the light pretty much the same as the water would. So we'd still expect to see pretty much the same. But they thought, what on earth could this be? All around us there is this 
something at minus 270 degrees centigrade, what can it be? And then somebody came up with a uh, big idea. And so the uh, secular model said, well, look, this must be the echo of the Big Bang. Wow. An echo usually needs something to reflect it back. Uh, you know, if you have, if you shout on the top of a hill and there's nothing to reflect it back, the noise just goes into the distance and gets lost. If you've got this big bang, the light, the energy will go out into, it must have something to reflect back off. What can it reflect from? Oh, well, at one stage, there was the speculation there was some kind of very elastic boundary to the universe that the Big Bang was having to push to create space. Now, that didn't last very long. That could have provided a, a, an echo. So now they don't call it the echo of the Big Bang. Now they call it the cosmic background radiation. And um, there are two, thing wrong, two things wrong with that. Their calculations showed that it ought to be about 50 degrees higher than it is. In fact, more than 50 degrees, because their initial calculations said it should be about um, 80 degrees absolute. And it's about three and a half. But they can fiddle, and they, now they know that the, what they've got to aim for, they can fiddle their calculations and get it down to, uh, to four and a half degrees and say, ah, well, there you are, we told you so. Um, but there's another thing. As they look out into the universe, they see galaxies and they see clumps of material with vast empty spaces between it. So the echo of this ought to be, as they call it, lumpy. The universe is lumpy. The material in the universe appears to be lumpy. So the reflection of it, this echo of it, should be lumpy too. But it isn't. It isn't lumpy at all. Um, but according to the Big Bang uh, theory, there's, there's really no problem. Now, the lumpiness is really a, 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 an embarrassment because they took measurements to about a thousandth of a degree. Now, this picture here, it is flattening out of a sphere all around us. So imagine we get this sphere and we open it up and put it flat in front of us and we end up with this picture. And the, the green represents the color and it is just about uniform. And that's to about a thousandth of a degree. But you can see there is a slight change on the middle. The, there is, in the axis, there's something going on. And they were convinced that if they got more accurate readings, 
they would find what they're looking for. What they're looking for, if it's anything to do with the Big Bang, it has to be all uneven. It's got to be random. The Big Bang produces a random pattern. It must produce a random pattern in the background radiation. But, to their horror, as they began getting more and more accurate readings, which were taken by uh, satellites, they got down to something like a 10,000th of a degree, and they found to their horror that there is a pattern there. And it's called the axis of evil, this Red, it looks like a big change because we're working to something like a ten thousandth of a degree. But it is a very noticeable feature, and it is not just a load of uh, random spots everywhere. We've got a very definite axis, and the problem with that axis is it corresponds exactly to the Earth's ecliptic. And they called it the axis of evil they claim because of the damage it could do to the Big Bang and horror of horrors. It suggests that the Earth could be important and the Bible might not be utter rubbish after all. Now, for uh, several years, there has been panic among the astronomers because of this axis of evil because it seems to get more and more evil as time goes on. And if we look at uh, this article in the New Scientist, in, the new scientist, it, it says, the axis of evil stretches across the cosmos. For a long time, part of the community was hoping this would go away, but it hasn't. Other scientists noticed that spiral galaxies were aligned and were spinning with respect to the same axis of evil. The rotation axis of all 19, uh, 93 quasars were aligned with each other, parallel in spite of the trillions of miles of distance between them. What this evidence is telling us is that all the objects in the universe are geocentrically orientated, putting us in the center of it. Horror of horrors. That's what the Bible says. Oh my. Now, as far as these uh, everything that's spinning around, on the biblical model, that's what you would expect. When you have stretching out, you have these eddies produced, and the eddies, the direction that they're spinning, depends on the direction you're stretching them out. And if you start off with water underneath, and you stretch out and end up with waters above and below, you would expect there would be a correspondence between the directions of stretching in both. It wouldn't be any surprise to find that the pattern in the waters above would match the pattern of the Earth. But as far as the secular model goes, there should be no pattern at all. There shouldn't be any eddies. There shouldn't be any spiral galaxies. But even if you do manufacture of them by cunning mathematics, you can't get them all to rotate in the same direction and along the same axis as the Earth's ecliptic.
Well, another article in New Scientist. The universe lines up along the axis of evil. Despite steadily improving measurements, the axis has stubborn, stubbornly refused to vanish. If only we knew why the axis was a peculiar alignment of features where we would have expected nothing but randomness. From the rotation of galaxies to the cosmic expansion, everything points in one direction. This could be not just an axis of evil, but an axis of everything. Perfectly in agreement with the Bible. Now, the next interesting thing, a really big project. It involves many universities throughout the world, a lot of different universities, a lot of scientists, a lot of very expensive apparatus, and they were set up to map the material in the universe. Now, the first thing they wanted to do was map one third of it, and then go on to mapping the other thirds. Well, in November 2003, they came to the end of the first stage, mapping the distribution in the moon, in the universe, of one third of the sky. And they published this picture on their website. It must have been a real embarrassment because here we are at the center of this and this is this slice of one third of the sky and you can see that everything is arranged in patterns around the earth. And you can see that they are dense patterns separated by very few objects, and again, there are very dense patterns of these objects, and they're all in concentric shells centered on the Earth. Now, looking at that, we have no surprises at all from the biblical model. Because we're not looking here at real objects, we are looking at reflections of the, sky, uh, of the stars. And as we go further away, we have more and more reflections. And you'd expect them to get dimmer and dimmer. And you can see the further we go from the middle, the less dense they are. And they're spaced. The dense rings are spaced. And you'd expect that, and that spacing will depend on the size of the universe, the distance between the mirrors that are reflecting. This is what you would expect from the biblical model. From the secular model, what a surprise. The Copernican principle says the Earth is nowhere special, and we find here it's right in the middle. And what you're supposed to find is somewhere where the Big Bang took place, which must not be where the Earth is, and from there, the material should get denser and denser. But what we see is we get these images getting fainter and fainter. Now, the reason why this secular model is wrong they believe 
that the things they're seeing in their telescopes are real objects. The biblical model says these things that you are finding, they are so faint that you need to use your high power telescopes where you point your telescope to the sky and set the, the thing turning so it'll keep track of that area of the sky all night long and you have these very sensitive devices which can pick up the slightest amount of, um, of light and store it up and put it on your computer screen. You know, you wouldn't see that if you look through these telescopes with the naked eye. They are so faint, you have to collect the data for hours and hours. And you can also do it for days and days. The next day you point at the same place and you collect this data again and build up these pictures. They are so faint. They are unbelievably faint. Now, you'd expect that with these reflections. Every time you have a reflection, it loses the energy. The image gets fainter. But they are thinking these are real things and so to be that far away, they must be billions of light years away but there's no way they can have them fitting on these alternate patterns of dense and not dense but it's exactly like that pattern we saw of the one girl and one light and these patterns getting uh, fainter as you go into the distance So all these, uh, all these observations, much to the dismay of the astronomers, are now pointing absolutely unequivocally to the Bible. They are showing exactly what you should expect from that model of the Bible that we looked at in Genesis chapter 1. It completely wipes out the secular theories. And we can say, for thousands of years, the Bible has been telling us the earth is the center of creation. For well over a hundred years, science has been proving the earth is the center of creation. Why have we been indoctrinated with lies? And anyway, why do they not now accept the truth? Why do they carry on telling us the lies? Well, they receive not the love of the truth, and they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie and if God sends you a delusion, you can believe it against all the evidence in the world. But there's no reason why we should. Napoleon pointed out people will believe anything as long as it's not in the Bible. And God pointed out, hath not God made foolish? the wisdom of this world.